Oh, good. Like I said before, it's really good to see you again, Bob Ryan. Um, you're asking a question about um, length of, of practice. Uh, let's look at it uh, from the perspective of the time of the Buddha, where in those days, they didn't have any clocks. The keeping was very primitive, but in fact, even sundials weren't invented until many centuries later. Hmm. Um, the uh, one point that uh, I have heard from skeptics who want to uh, cling to clocks is that at least you can stick a stick in the ground upright in the tropics so that you can tell what is noon <laughs> or get pretty close to noon, somewhere within 10 or 20 minutes of noon. But that's about the only thing that you can do. Um, and so um, that gives them then the idea of um, uh, the example would be Wakalabojana. You may have not heard that word, Vekula Bojana, Vedramanisaka, Abhadam, Samati, Ami. It's normally the sixth precept if you're doing eight precepts. Okay. And the Vekula Bojana is translated as eating at the wrong time. Now, the Buddha was really, really big on eating one meal a day for a variety of reasons. And I think that he had gotten used to that when he was doing the austerities and whatnot. But it actually is quite convenient. Just an example of, of that is, is that if you ate once a day, everybody in the United States, for instance, ate once a day, what would happen to the restaurant industry? <laughs> I mean, maybe they would save all the money from breakfast and lunch and go out to dinner a lot, you know, I don't know. <laughs> right, exactly. And so in that regard, the timing is not so important. But what Wake of the Bojana had to, more to do was with the time that the monks went out for food. The timing of the food gathering, not the timing of the food eating. That in fact, there is a sutta where the Buddha says is that it's quite okay for the monk, even if he's eating in community with all the other monks. The general sister is that when they go out, they will go out in various places, they will come back, and then they will all eat together. But even in that position, a monk can still not eat all that's in his bowl, he can take some of it with him. And, and go. The only idea is, is that you don't want to have food in your little hut at night because that's inviting guests in. Right. Ants all the way up to gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> and so the best thing to do then if you've got any food left is to throw that out or put it out uh, where the animals could get to it, uh, you know, 30, 50 meters from the cootie. Uh, that in fact, that's actually <laughs> something very interesting at Watso and Moke is you will go around, if you know what to look for, you'll see old bowls that are that are rotting, not rotting, rusting out. Okay, because the common point is, is that the last thing that a monk does after he leaves uh, or disrobes or whatever like that, the last thing he does as the monk's art is leave his old bowl. Hmm. Full of goodies in the woods for the animals. Okay. Okay. So this is the whole concept. And what we're getting at is, is that um, the Buddha was trying to make everything really easy. And yet the Western mindset has made a whole bunch of rules. <laughs> and, by, and by having all of these rules, they're not making things easy at all. They're taking all of the difficulties they had, and now they're piling a bunch of rules on them, and the rules are not making things easy. The rules are making things even worse. Mm. Okay. Now, let's get to the actual practice now that we've had that example of the food. And that is, is that the Buddha says, um, the, the directions is, go to the forest, go to an empty hut, go to a heap of straw, 
I think you could actually add the word cave there, but then uh, the next one would be to a tree um, that has kind of a sitting place under it. And there we would sit down. Now in the translation into English, they generally will translate cross-legged and the word in the poly, there's no cross-leg there. Hmm. It's just a seat or just okay. a couch or a chair or a sitting place. Could be nothing but just a spot on the ground that's known to be a place to sit, like under a tree. So this is the whole idea is just kind of get away from it all. And now you fast forward into what you modernly see when people think of meditation, and I've seen it on television, I've seen it all over the place. The idea is a uh, fairly sophisticated hardwood mahogany room or something that's very large and has cushions or sitting mats that are appropriately spaced in squares. And that people come in and uh, they sit on these cushions in this place that's got an altar or a designated front to it or whatever like that. They're all facing in the same direction and all of this kind of formality there. Many of them will also doing some bowing and some scraping and do stuff like that. Some pujas, maybe light some candles and some incense. And it gets very, very ritualized. And then everybody continues to pretend to be in seclusion. <laughs> yeah, it's a little different from the cave idea, I guess. <laughs> yes, okay. Now, if you're going to the uh, to the empty hut in or into the forest without a clock and without any of that other stuff, now we can begin to look at something completely different because all we're really talking about is getting the mind secluded from all of the unwholesomeness of the world, including all the unwholesomeness of a meditation hall. I mean, there are knees in that meditation hall to gander at. <laughs> <laughs> and there's coughing and all kinds of other stuff, as well as everyone has the idea that just because I'm looking at everybody else, doesn't mean that everybody else is looking at everybody else. Everybody else is looking at me. All right. And so that's further the fact that we're not really in seclusion. And so there's a lot of mind moments that we are spent in there. And yet somehow or another, they have the idea that we should be sitting there in that meditation hall for long periods of time, followed by short breaks and then by more long periods of sitting time. And the Buddha never had that in mind at all. He had the whole idea of getting into seclusion, getting away from everyone else. And that um, the next thing that we can talk about is the idea that if people meditated for the benefit of the meditation while they were in meditation, then the only results of meditation is going to be that everybody who becomes skilled in meditation is going to spend their whole life in the meditation hall and not ever go out unless mm. it's absolutely necessary, like to go to the toilet or something, and then the hot diggity dog let me back into that meditation hall. And I don't think that's how you want to live your life now, is it? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. When people are confronted with, well, why then? Is that the ideal? When that's not even what the Buddha is thinking of as ideal. His the point that he's making, the important point is seclusion, mm -hmm. is to get away from it all. But we're only getting away from it all so that we can train the mind. That basically uh, the Sangha has two major components to it in the way of lifestyle, in the sense that the Sangha is a uh, lifestyle where each individual person in the Sangha will spend a lot of time in seclusion alone. But then 
uh, every day, sometimes three or four times, and sometimes for many hours in a day on certain occasions, these uh, individuals, these monks, will then come together as a sangha in great harmony and great friendship because they continue to practice as a group together individually with each one of them inside of that group is individually practicing what he was already individually practicing while he was out in seclusion out in the woods or in his empty hut so they have periods of both seclusion and togetherness maybe on the same day for example right seclusion and togetherness uh would be the typical uh way and that in some cases a whole lot more togetherness and only a little bit of seclusion. And this is the kind of the environment that a meditation retreat is trying to uh, to cultivate. And I don't think they're doing a very good job of it because of all of these misconceptions that the Westerners keep having about what is meditation. Okay, so let's look at it from this perspective. I had students who have called me and says that the other day I was watching a video on YouTube and the thought occurred to me, I should be meditating, but I didn't want to meditate. I wanted to watch the video. And so I didn't watch the video and I didn't meditate. I was sitting there telling myself to go meditate and the, and the answer was, no, I want to watch the video. Okay. Now that's wrong practice. Because he thinks that going in meditation means he has to leave the video. He's got to turn off his computer and go find his place on the floor that he pretends to be like the meditation hall he did that retreat in. And that's a lot of effort. <laughs> and that's a whole lot of effort. The right way of having it done when, when we were watching that video and the thought comes, why don't I meditate? The answer that immediately within a tenth of a second. Now, I've already spent far too long, but let us say that the thought comes now. I should be meditating. Yeah, that's nice. In other words, we do it right then and there whenever we think of it. That's the difference. Meditation then is actually. To be honest with you, we have to give the word up <laughs> because we're not practicing meditation. We've already decided and all those other people that have decided they know what meditation is and what we're talking about has to be something else. And so we'll call it Anapanasati because that's exactly <laughs> what I just did right then was mindfully take in a breath. This is the important point then is, is that the sitting practice uh, is not really a practice of sitting, that the practice has to be done in all postures, and the Buddha talks about all four postures, walking, standing, lying, especially the lying posture, because you spend quite a lot of your time every day lying down. That's true, and not very and so mindful not, about it either. <laughs> and not very mindful generally either. But uh, mindfully laying down, mindfully posing or having the right posture while we're laying down, mindfully breathing in well and breathing out is much more refreshing than <clears throat> laying on our back or on our stomach. And so laying on one side and then remembering to do that throughout the night so that when we catch ourselves laying in any other posture, we mindfully take ourselves out of the unwholesome posture and put ourselves into the wholesome posture. That's one's right effort. Okay. Okay. And so this over and over and over again is the key to it is let's take the formality out of it because the formality itself is a hindrance. Sort of a rite or ritual. <laughs> turns it into a ritual, turns it into a, um, uh, it turns it really into the meditation will do it for me. Almost like the same mentality as the devil made me do it. In other words, if I go sit on the floor long enough and meditate, I'll certainly get the results eventually somehow. 
is almost like people say after 30,000 hours, the common machine is going to waltz in here with his Shakti pot and then I'll feel good. No, if you make it that long, huh? If you make it that long, (laughs) some do. This is actually the practice that so many people have that uh, um, it goes under the labels of choiceless awareness or noting or other things like that is that they think and have been actually taught that your job is to see what's there to note it to see it clearly right this is not what we're practicing at all that's only half the work the real work is is to not just see it clearly but determine is this stuff worthwhile having or not We have to determine that this is an unwholesome thought or this is a wholesome thought. And if it's unwholesome, then aha, I see you, Myra. And that aha, I see you, Myra, withdraws us from it. Because you see, the natural tendency uh, is, is that when someone has a thought underlying that, is uh, the concept, maybe it's not a concept, it's more of like an emotional attachment of this is my thought. This is my thought. This one is my thought. I am thinking here, okay? This is the way that we look at it without recognizing that really, these are not our thoughts. We're actually nothing much more than just a gramophone. We're nothing much more than a tape recorder, and all those thoughts are just old tapes that we've got stored, and we're playing them to ourselves. <laughs> that these are not my thoughts at all. These are thoughts that I have picked up from other people over the course of a lifetime, and I pick them up without being uh, in a uh, wise state of determination as to whether this is worth picking up or not. We just pick things up wholesale. Yep. We actually pick up things that are unwholesome intentionally because they point out dangers. Example, little Johnny is there having a marvelous point of moment in time of being a budding artist. And he is drawing a magnificent little drawing there on the wall of his bedroom. And mom comes in. And she starts thinking about landlords and paint and uh, damage and uh, expenses and things like this. And instead of paying attention to what a marvelous drawing this is that this child has done, let me go get him an art set as the first thing to purchase, not paint to cover up the drawing that he's done. We can we can leave that as long as we live here. (laughs) Right. Let's go ahead. And so uh, basically we can have a, a budding Rembrandt, but because he's fussed at, he will remember that. His drawing was destroyed. It was taken away from him as no good. And so when he is an adult, an adult, he will have thoughts like, I can't draw. Mm-hmm. And his drawings will, uh, uh, let us say, be so unskilled as to prove that he cannot draw because he hasn't drawn since he was fussed at for drawing on the wall. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of mentality that we get in. So we can see that it wasn't necessarily just drawing on the wall that we got fussed at that destroys us being an artist. That happens with almost every conversation that we have when we are criticized as children by adults, that it does nothing but box the child into his own created prison. And we each one of us do that. And so not only do we create a prison, but the prison is complete with a prison guard. (laughs) And who is that guard? That's that tape machine that keeps playing over and over and over again. And these are the things that then become the hindrances out of the past. And this is what we do to process all of the stuff that happens in the present moment. So in the present moment, what happens is, is that we take some sensory input. 
whatever senses that we take it in, we take some sensory input in, and then we process it to try to make sense out of it. Once we've made sense out of it, that's what impacts us. It's not what really happens, not what we call it in sensory awareness, but it's after we processed it. Well, guess what we're going to use to process it is stuff out of our past. Yeah. Right. So this is how the thing works. So that means that by the time anything impacts us, the feelings that we're going to have about it are almost preloaded into the sense that we made out of it. Mm. And this is one of the things then that we have to start interrupting is to interrupt that process and get so good at it that uh, whenever unwholesome thoughts arise, which is part of that processing of making sense out of stuff, we can cut that stuff off and says, no, we're not <clears throat> going to be problem solving. We're not trying to make sense out of it in the sense of what is it that needs to be done here. We can just let sensory input come in because our original attitude is there's no problem anyway. That it is not my job to filter out all of my sensory input to try to find out some mistakes and some wrongdoing so I can go fix it. <laughs> and we might be more fun like that. Might be more fun to just enjoy the show, you know, instead of having yeah, to think just about it. Enjoy the show. That's in fact a uh, there's a there's a star. This, this song is about ten years old. I don't think it ever made the charts, but it was on the internet. Um, Lanka was the girl's name, a musician out of Australia. And the song starts with, I'm just a little bit caught in the middle. Life is a mystery and love is a riddle. And she's in just doesn't know what to do. And then about the middle of the song, she comes up with um, that there is a giant spotlight up in the sky and everybody thinks that the spotlight is shining on them but the spotlight is shining just shining <laughs> and therefore because the spotlight is on let's enjoy the show and then the chorus of her uh, song comes in um that people say that they don't like the show and they want the money back i want the money back i want the money back and then like says just enjoy the show I want my money back. I want my money back. Just enjoy the show. Okay. You've already got a ticket. In fact, that's how she starts. That you've already mm. got your ticket to the show. You've already got your ticket. You see, that's the whole point is people think that they've got to have a ticket before they can enjoy the show. And the show is already on. They're already in there. Not only are they in there, they're on stage. Hmm. And here we come with Shakespeare. Everybody's on stage. <laughs> Everybody act is well. an actor. And everybody is on stage rehearsing their script. And what is their script? It's those old tapes we learned as a child. And here we are just rehearsing our script and rehearsing our script. And there's 10,000 million people on the stage rehearsing their script. And Micah and Shakespeare and the Buddha's inviting you to get off the stage and sit in the audience and enjoy the show. And what that means is to enjoy the show of your own sensory input rather than being on stage reading your script. And I think that's a pretty good analogy of what's really going on. So we have to remember to stop that script reading and get off the stage and enjoy the show. And you do not need a meditation hall to practice that. Good, because I don't have one. <laughs> and in a way, that meditation hall is its own kind of stage. <laughs> and so we need to take an emphasis of uh, training differently. Because, as I said, as we talked about before, that you do not want to spend your time sitting on the floor in some obscure meditation hall or cave, and that's your life. That you want to actually be able to live a life, and I would assume that that means that you want to live a life 
Finnish call it abundantly. That it instead of calling it everlasting, we could call it effervescent. <laughs> fully alive. Sounds good to me. Booging on down the road, enjoying your life without a care or a problem in the world. <laughs> and so this is what we need to practice. And we need to practice it all day, every day, any time that we can think of it. Now, here's the an issue is, is that if we say, oh, I should be doing this all the time, that should be doing it all the time is a setup for failure, and we wind up making that part of the old tapes. Mm. <laughs> Anything that's got a should to it, that's a tape. Rather than looking at it as um, a natural way of thinking about it, is what would you like to do? Look at for your, your own feelings, because we spend so much time not feeling good because we're following orders. We're doing what we should do. Many, many people have heard of the benefits of a meditation retreat, and so they go to the meditation retreat, and they do the meditation as if they should do it, hoping for some results because they were a good child. I want my pat on the head, Daddy. I sat there a long time, didn't I? They paid their time. Paid their dues, exactly. And the whole point is, is that they didn't actually do the practice in the sense of clarifying, purifying, being on guard, noting it well, and then if it's a hindrance or if it is a uh, invokes a feeling that is not a joyful feeling, to throw it out. That the Buddha was very, very big on this stuff about the hindrances and, and his, in could, could be as many as half the suttas where hindrances are mentioned. And um, there's many places about how important it is to be free from them. Uh, in the sutta on one's right effort, or excuse me, on the Eightfold Noble Path, in the section where he's talking about one's right effort, he keeps talking about one's right effort is to actually change our view from an unwholesome view to a wholesome view. And then the next part of the right effort is to change our thoughts from unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts. This is the primary uh, thing that has to be done. But also in the Anapanasati Sutta, it talks about it uh, from the position of actually the breathing have to do this too. Now, Mahasi and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa both talked about this situation that we actually have to seize the object. We have to jump on the object. So in this case, um, noting would be kind of a passive operation. But this is a very active operation. This is energetic. We're not going deep into meditation. We're we're sailing. We're flying. We're flapping our wings, and we're getting up into the air. Okay. So what is this flapping? Is the right effort to leave the ground, the right effort that it takes to get away from all of the unwholesome feelings, unwholesome thoughts, and to have only wholesome thoughts. In the Anapanasati Sutta, this is called gladdening the mind, but also in the Anapanasati Sutta is talking about this seizing or grabbing or jumping on the object is also with the breathing. That we have to jump on that breath. We can't just watch the breath because if we just watch the breath while the breathing is normal, the mind will just flitter right away from the breathing. There's nothing really uh, intense about it. We're going to put some intensity in there by consciously taking a long, deep in-breath and consciously taking a long, deep out-breath because this is a much more relaxing kind of breathing anyway, and it's energizing. And so we, uh, we're basically working on two levels at the same time, but they're back and forth like this. And that is mindfulness is that this is a long, deep breath, and then mindfulness is that this is a long, deep out-breath. Mm -hmm. 
while on the other side between that long deep breath and then out breath is, is that is this thought that we're having now wholesome or not? And if it is wholesome, that's good. If it's not wholesome, then we throw it out. Now, this can be done at any point in time that you think about it, to take that deep breath and to throw that unwholesome thought out. And it really doesn't have anything to do with meditation halls and sitting practices and uh, incense and candles and Buddha rupas and all of that kind of stuff. What it has to do is the basic points of the Eightfold Noble Path is to have the right view that, hey, folks, let's get wholesome here. And then right sati, hey, folks, let's remember to get wholesome here. Mm-hmm. And then right effort, hey, folks, let's actually get wholesome here. And then right um Sama Sankapa in the Pali is right attitude of way, guys, I'm really good at getting wholesome here. Now, that's the change in attitude. A change in attitude is from the victim who walks into the meditation hall and plops himself down with the idea that this is hard work. This is a drudgery. I'm going to do it because eventually I'll get some advantage out of it. Right. All they're doing is that you're practicing intensely in the meditation hall, all the crap that they've been intensely uh, practicing throughout their lives that brought them to the idea that maybe I should go to the meditation hall. (laughs) (laughs) So we have to make a change. This is the big change that we need to make is to change to make the thoughts wholesome and that we have to figure out what is a wholesome thought and what is not a wholesome thought because that is in fact a skill to be developed. And that's also the skill of right view. What we at one time would think would be an okay or a wholesome thought, eventually we begin to see, no, that thought's got some dangers built into it. And because it's dangerous, maybe we can use, uh, go someplace else that's a little more wholesome than this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. An example of that would be people who are practicing metta and they're thinking about giving metta to someone in another country or across town or somewhere that's not here now. If their mind is not already already predisposed to the wholesome, then when they're thinking about giving metta to that person, they'll also say, yeah, but he lives right next door to this person I'm not about to give any metta to. And the hell with both of them anyway. (laughs) You see, why is that? Because we've got those unwholesome thoughts. And one of the qualities of that unwholesome thought immediately is to say, wait a minute, I'm thinking about someone else that's not right here right now. Yeah, it's easy to get uh, lost in like inventing scenarios where they're really happy or like wishing them well somewhere else some different time. Mm -hmm. I did a I did a retreat, an online retreat, actually, with uh, Bonte how do you say it? Vermilamsi? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I learned a lot, but I don't think it was what he was trying to teach us. <laughs> oh, what do you mean? Well, I, uh, well, I guess he, his instructions were to sort of find this feeling of uh, a warm love or meta feeling in the body somewhere. And uh, <laughs> I was not having much success with that. So I really just kept think, thinking back to uh, what you were talking about in your videos of uh, kind of catching those um, unwholesome thoughts and kicking them out um, with more joyful thoughts. So I was kind of torn between two different systems of meditation during the retreat. Actually, so I got it out of my it's system. The same, it's the same system. Well, it was what frustrating trying to and I are find teaching this thing. Are exactly the same things. We're just teaching it in a slightly different language. My language is much closer to the language of the Buddha, and his language is much closer to uh, uh, touchy-feely, uh, warm, uh, new-agey kind of stuff. But guess what? A lot of students respond to that. All right, but what he's teaching is is to go ahead and have that warm, gushy feeling inside, and that's exactly 
what we're practicing here, but we're doing it because uh, of having wholesome thoughts and the wholesome thoughts that you do have are going to help you have that warm, gushy feeling inside. He's just opposite. He's just working directly with the feelings rather than working with the, the breathing and the mind that affects the feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I think the, I'm having a lot more success with the uh, breathing. Um, as you said, like controlling the breath, like the long breath, or maybe if it feels better, a short breath every now and then to change things up. And then the whole body, you know, responds to that in different ways. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> all the time now, I feel like my head sort of fluxing. Uh, I don't know why, but <laughs> that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of watch how the breath affects all the sensations of the body. I guess that's something to keep you occupied. When Actually, you it does, in fact, a lot that when people are breathing very, very well, that the whole body's blood, especially blood chemistry changes. That under ordinary circumstances, there is a certain level of oxygen and a certain level of carbon dioxide and the body will maintain that kind of homeostasis. But by breathing really well, we change that to where the carbon dioxide and the poisons are very low and the oxygen level is very high, which means all parts of the body have extra oxygen that they put to good use. And so the, the mind wakes up, brightens up, gets sharp. Uh, the, the feeling touch, the sensations of the body become vibrantly alive. We become tingly alive all over. We feel good because the body is oxygenated. This is part of the reason for the breathing well. And so the, just the breathing well alone will help someone find that warm, gushy spot inside. Feels really good, okay? That in fact, getting the body oxygenated will help uh, establish that warm, gushy feeling because it happens all over the body. Um, a, a state of well-being, a state, a state of uh, sustainable homeostasis. And everything is good in the sense of no problems or no worries. We're not in shutdown or semi-shutdown mode the way that normal breathing is. That now we're vibrantly alive. Okay, so the, the breathing does have that quality to it. But... <clears throat> The Buddha was very, very big on uh, the, the business of having wholesome thoughts and removal of unwholesome thoughts. Now, Vila Maramsi is actually talking about that when he's saying, try to find that warm, gushy feeling inside means don't think about all that crap out over there. <laughs> but let's, let's work on getting this done, which is very much like saying, let's have only wholesome thoughts. But he's got a slightly different emphasis, and so many people will get gain value because they'll find that warm, gushy place inside, which is exactly what we're looking for. And a lot of people don't because they don't recognize that they've got so much crap going on that they're not able to find that warm, gushy spot. So now we have to deal it at that level. Let's go get that um, bunch of crap that's going on and start pinning that stuff down is what's wholesome, what's worth worth having, what kind of thoughts will I have that lead me to that warm, gushy place inside? And what kind of thoughts will prevent me from having it? The kind of thoughts that will give me anxiety or uptightness. Okay, an example of that would be, uh, am I sitting up well? What does everybody think about me while I'm sitting in the meditation hall? Don't they think that, wow, I'm a good meditator. I'm better than they are. You know, these are the kind of thoughts that are not conducive to have one feel warm and cushy inside. <laughs> and we don't recognize that. But when we recognize, oh, only wholesome thoughts are going to be allowed in. And so now is when we come to the idea then that uh, the Buddha is talking about gladdening the mind. Uh, this again is what uh, Vila Maramsi is pointing to. He's pointing to let's have the kind of thoughts, let's gladden the mind so that we can have this warm, gushy feeling on the inside. And so the gladdening the mind would be the thoughts of, wow, isn't this warm? Wow, isn't this gushy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And so those would be the kind of thoughts that gladden the mind. Ah, this is really nice. Wow, what a nice moment this is. Vita uh, Maramsi also talks about puppies. Because people do, when <laughs> yes. they have a puppy, they have a warm, gushy feeling inside. So think about puppies. That's a much more wholesome thing to think about than, uh, let us say, having a tiger climb up your back, which is not so uh, warm and gushy. <laughs> <laughs> or that we've got snakes or alligators. So it ba- basically what we're pointing at then are the kind of thoughts that we're going to have are going to be thoughts that induce us to feel safe and secure rather than the kind of thoughts that give us anxiety. So thoughts about going to work are going to give anxiety. But thoughts about, hey, I don't have to go to work right now. Everything is okay right now, will give us feelings of security. So we can think of words of security in the sense that, wow, things really are safe right now. There are really no dangers. Why do I go around spending so much thought time in dangers when in fact there are no dangers. Why do I spend so much time thinking about things of, of problem solving when really there's no problems? <laughs> and so having thoughts of there's no problems, having thoughts of everything is safe, having thoughts of I'm comfortable right now. This is another point. And that is, is that when people are sitting in meditation for long periods of time, and they are not used to it, it's not comfortable for them, then they will have various pains in the body. The meditation instructors seem like they just came out of the gym or off the dance floor in the sense of toughen up, folks. Put up with it. Yeah, sit here and make yourself uncomfortable and then look at it. (laughs) Wait a minute, that's not what the Buddha taught. We're talking about comfort. This is why I watch someone milk at the retreats there. They only sit about 30 minutes. But even then, the students are instructed that if the body has pain, that it's okay to stand up and just stand in place and let the body relax and the circulation come. Make sure that you're breathing well and then sit back down. But in other meditation retreats like Goenka, they have this thing called strong determination. You've got to sit there with your eyes closed for an hour. No <laughs> movement in the hands. Don't open your eyes. Don't open your legs. Nothing. Just sit there and have strong determination. Well, there is some value to that. I have to give them credit for it. But it's also misery. and that if it's misery and misery alone, then that's all you've got out of it. But if you've got, if you can come out of it the other side, well, wow, I was able to do that. If I can sit there for an hour, I can do anything. And now we're developing right attitude. So that has some value, but that right attitude still has to be developed because the normal hindrance of the mind are just going to see it as a drudgery, hoping that we're going to get some value out of it in the future, because we're not getting any value out of it right now. But if you are sitting there in that strong determination, you say, I can handle this. This is nothing. There's no problem here at all, folks. But that's just a little sensation. It's a sharp sensation, <laughs> but it's not pain. I don't call it pain. Okay, so now we're talking about a completely different attitude, and we're still talking about it from the issue of wholesome thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so there are times, in fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about this, that when one is sick, that's a really good opportunity to practice. And yet many meditators will say, oh, I'm too sick to practice. Well, when you dislike your meditation sits, it's good the timer is good and it's good to have an excuse not to do it you know but if you can enjoy it then it's i'm sure it's especially good when you're sick then it's especially good when you're sick but it especially doesn't make sense when you're intentionally giving yourself the pain and then not doing the right thing with it 
then it becomes an endurance rather than a joy. It's almost like let's only pick up the weights that we know that we can hoist. If I can do 250 kilos, which is quite a lot, <laughs> then let me jerk 250 kilos. Let me stop playing with 350 because all I'm going to do is hurt myself. So at that level, we have to recognize what our limits are, and those limits need to be tested, but they need to be tested not from the hard stop about I'm doing it way up here, but I'm only capable of doing this. Let's look at it. If I'm capable of doing this, then let's have that as a skill to grow so that I can get it better and better. Right. This is why we don't want to sit too long. This is why sitting for a short period of time is better. We also have issues about attention span, that the mind actually does get tired, and it will get tired quickly if we're not breathing well. If we're breathing in an ordinary way, then students after 10 or 15 minutes can get drowsy. But normally when they are breathing well, and especially if they're breathing really well with the practice of Anapanasati, then uh, they can go for longer periods of time and stay on top of things. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, for instance, was well known uh, every paddy mock, every two weeks or once a month, depending upon, I forget which. Uh, I think that he they did paddy mock every two weeks. Every two weeks, the monks would sit up all night and Bhikkhu Buddhadasa would come out and start talking about 2 a.m. And he would continue to talk and give a Dhamma talk until sunrise, about four hours. That's, That's why there's some, so many uh, dominoes. So, okay, because he could do that. He could sit and he could talk for four hours and not lose his concentration. That's a, that's a, um, uh, a goal that we can reach, but it's not something, a skill that is to be developed. It's a skill that develops on its own as we spend more and more time in the present moment without having the mind get tired. Because when the mind gets tired, it tends to go off uh, into drowsiness, not able to keep track of things. So what we want to practice is basically for short periods of time, but we want to practice often. We want to practice only when we're up. We don't want to practice when we're tired. So there's no reason to practice if we if we can practice for 30 minutes and let's practice for 30 minutes. Let's do it twice or three or four or five or six times a day. But if I can practice for 30 minutes, then it makes no sense for me to sit there for an hour because that second 30 minutes is not going to be nearly as beneficial mm -hmm. as that first 30 minutes. And yet the, the mentality of the human mind is more, 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 more. So if I have a good session after 20 minutes, then they want more again. And now they're going to get tired and they're not going to have it. And so now they're in a state of deprivation and want and back into hindrances again, wanting something that they had 10 minutes ago. <laughs> all right. So this is all of those dangers that we have when we try to make things too much. And so the better thing to do is to practice for shorter periods of time more often. Mm -hmm. Another way of thinking about it is, is that you spent your whole life talking yourself into feeling bad. Now is the time to start talking ourselves into feeling good. So the more often during the day you talk yourself into feeling good, the better the skills will grow at doing that. Yeah, and so rather than having um, let us say a two hour session to where only 30 minutes were valuable and the rest of the hour and a half was kind of wasted. Let's break that into uh, eight or 10 sessions of 20 minutes. And then we're going to have a whole lot more uh, skill development. Because we keep coming back to it fresh, the mind has gotten refreshed again. Doing what it's doing, and so now we're ready to go sit again and practice just the wholesome, just the wholesome, just the wholesome. So I would recommend doing it many times a day with the idea that, let us say that you do it six times a day, 
And one of the times that, that you normally do it is uh, on coffee break at 10 a.m. And the next time that you do it is 12 o'clock at noon or whatever we're talking about, just in generalities, which means that there's a two hour gap between I did it then and I'm going to do it later. Except that at 11 o'clock, we remember. <laughs> and and 11.15, we begin to remember. And so what we're trying to do is we're we're, we're trying to develop the sati so that we can remember more often and more often and more often throughout the day. That basically sati is very much like Murphy's law. Hmm. You know Murphy's law? I've I've heard you say it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's anything, the one about bad events. <laughs> anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And it will go wrong at the worst possible moment. Which means that it's going to go wrong when you need it the most, which means it's going to go wrong when it's under stress. Mm -hmm. Which means that the meditator is uh, going to forget all about his meditation when he uh, is forcibly put under stress. Right? That's Murphy's Law. Which means that we need to practice our sati so that it will arise when we do need it the most. That's the way of looking at it. We want to practice sati so that it is not that it's there all the time, but we want it to be there when we need it. Right. Yeah, I've been doing the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the technique with changing postures, I guess, when you stand up with changing postures. Oh, yes. uh Ask yourself, what am I doing standing up or what am I doing sitting down? That kind Mm -hmm. of thing. What am I doing standing up? Where am I going? Why did I leave my comfortable chair? I mean, I was sitting there and no problems. Exactly. No place to go and nothing to do. So why did I get up? Better be a good reason. Yeah, you got to have a pretty good reason to stand up, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) And so we need to note that. Make sure that is this wholesome or not? So this is that wake-up call. So many times during the day, waking up uh, when we get out of a chair or when we sit down in the chair, that's a moment then to really go into cleaning out the mind, taking a deep breath, relaxing, feeling all warm and gushy inside for maybe 10 or 20 seconds. And then we can go do what we did wanted to do when we sat down. So over and over and over again, we need to find ways of uh, practicing sati. So the example then is the student who is watching a YouTube and he has the thought, I ought to be meditating. And then the next thought is, but I want to watch the video. I'll meditate later. And then the next thought is, oh, you do that all the time. You ought to go meditate. And so now we've got a dialogue inside the mind about you ought to go meditate. I want to watch the video. And guess what? Now there's no meditation and there's no video. There's this stupid dialogue that we've gotten ourselves into about you ought to meditate. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Do you ever have the feeling that you wanted to go? You wanted to go and you wanted to stay? Stay, go, go, stay. Right? That's hindrance. That's yeah. confusion. So a better way of doing it, and instead of turning off the, t- uh, the, the YouTube and going and sitting down in this formalized thing that we call meditation, the answer is, is that all oh, you ought to be meditating now? That's the first thought. The second thought is, oh, wow, that feels so nice. So if you ever have the feeling that you ought to meditate, do it right then. <laughs> That's sati yeah. for you. Wake up and do it right then. And and so now we can do it not 10 times a day or 100 times a day, but we're doing it every every minute or so. Take another deep breath and enjoy the moment. <laughs> they have said that the average breather, the average human, breathes on average about 14,000 breaths a day. How many of them are mindful? (laughs) Probably not many of those for a lot of us. Well, if they are mindful, there's going to be not so many of them. 
because meditators, when we mindfully breathe slower, we're going to bring the rate down from 20 breaths a minute down to about 10, maybe down to six breaths a minute. And so we breathe slower, That's, uh, but we do so intentionally. Every time that we do take a breath, we breathe it slower. That means that when we're not thinking about the breath, they are already being conditioned to start being slower anyway. Mm. And so slowing our breathing down and starting paying attention more to the kind of thoughts that we have so that we can take advantage of it and start talking to ourselves into feeling good rather than continuing to give ourselves problems to solve, work to do, places to go. Because it's really, you're already okay. You're already enlightened. Just sit down and enjoy the fact that you're already enlightened. You've already got a ticket to the show. That you don't need to work anymore. You don't need salvation from someone else. You can free yourself from your own sin just by forgetting about it. Throw it out. Remember to forget about it. <laughs> just forget about it. Throw out the past. Be here in the present moment. Sometimes that gets really big, like an argument we have with someone. And then we want to know, well, how do I handle that person now that we have just, you know, violently broken up? And this happens with, with family members or close friends or whatever. How do you handle an argument? The answer is, is that if you were so uh, unmindful as to have the argument, now the thing to do after the argument is to forget about it. <laughs> forget it ever happened. Treat the other person as if it didn't happen because the own, the argument only happened because of the lack of my own mindfulness. Okay, not note that and let it pass. And so now there was no argument. And so I can treat my friend the way that I was treating him before we had an argument. If he remembers the argument, it's, well, I don't remember. <laughs> so we let think, we let the past go. If you do remember the argument, guess what? Now you've got a problem. Mm. <laughs> and he has a problem because he remembers the argument. <laughs> and so now both of you are back into problem solving, and I call that another argument. <laughs> <laughs> problem solving, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the way to think about that stuff then is just don't think about it at all. Just throw it out. But we have to be on guard to make sure that things are wholesome. You need sati to throw it out. And when you wake up, throw it out. Take out the garbage. The only way to have a clean house is by keep going out the garbage. There will always be new garbage. Don't let it pile up. <laughs> yep. So we keep taking it out and taking it out and taking it out and, and, and then enjoy that spaciousness, that freedom that is really not crowded anymore. So we're, we're seeking that spaciousness, that freedom, freedom of worries, problems, anything. And as soon as that thought of, oh, you ought to be meditating, the answer to that is, yes, I am. <laughs> I like that. And so now we can recognize that we don't need a cushion. We don't need a sitting practice. What we need is to remember to practice in whatever posture that we're in. Now, that's good to uh, to get involved with it in the beginning is to set aside time, make sure that we're in seclusion and that um, the discipline that can be picked up uh, in the sense of the familiarity, the practice, that's uh, advantages that retreats have. There's a lot of good re uh, advantages to retreats, but if they're not done correctly, they wind up being problematic because people start practicing wrong because they want something out of it rather mm. than recognize you're not going to get anything out of this. Yeah, you're in the show, but there's no free popcorn and there's no Coca-Cola. It's just the show. That's all we get. <laughs> I guess we have to enjoy it. And all you have to do is enjoy the show.
And so this is the way that we think about it. You're already enlightened. So stop wanting anything. <laughs> so this is the way that we practice, Brian. This is uh, uh, the, the kind of thing that we, that we start with. So congratulations for getting back into it. Thank you. Give yourself the warm fuzzy by thinking about warm fuzzy. <laughs> if you think about how do I find warm fuzzy? What is that? He told us to get warm fuzzy and I don't know how to do that. That's the kind of hindrances that prevent us from having warm fuzzy. But warm fuzzy thought will give you warm fuzzy feelings. <laughs> oh yeah, I couldn't feel warm and fuzzy. It's all right to do that. Everything's all right. Everything's fine. Why don't I feel warm and fuzzy inside? In fact, I like that phrase, warm and fuzzy. The Pali word for it is sukha. Mm. That warm, fuzzy feeling or sukha has the quality of safety, security, contentment, and satisfaction. Above all, satisfaction. A warm, fuzzy feeling inside means everything is all right. Everything is fine. That there's no dukkha. That's third noble truth right there. Warm and fuzzy, yeah, that's third noble truth. And so practice warm and fuzzy. <laughs> Talk yourself into warm and fuzzy. Yeah, you could feel warm and fuzzy. Take a deep breath and warm. And as you breathe out, all fuzzy. As I breathe in, things are joy. I breathe in joy. And as I breathe out, I relax. I relax. So these are the kind of wholesome thoughts that will bring on those feelings of warm and fuzzy. And as you progress through warm and fuzzy, you'll go into, let us say you begin to grow a mane. <laughs> oh. You become the lion. The warm, fuzzy lion, in the, in the sense of can do this, can do warm and fuzzy. The confidence. We could do this, the confidence. Shraddha is the Pali word, or sada in the uh, actual Pali. Shraddha, I've heard a long time ago, it's in Sanskrit. I still use the Sanskrit. Okay, but it means confidence. It does not mean faith. At this level, we mm. are not practicing faith hoping someday that it might be true, that's faith. No, this is confidence. You're darn right, it, it's real. I got it. <laughs> it's not I have a faith that I've got a, a rock in my pocket. I know I've got a rock in my pocket because I felt it again, and there it is. So this is direct knowledge. This is, um, uh, and it comes in the form of exuberance. Hmm. It comes in the form of not, yes, I can do it. It comes into, hold my beer. <laughs> it's got exuberance built into it. It's got a wow feeling to it because it really is a, a wow of confidence, of um, uh, championship, rather than the older feelings wrapped in hindrances are the feelings of um, victim. Meditation is hard. I want something out of it. I don't have what I need. And we change that attitude from being the attitude of a victim into the attitude of a lion. We grow that mane. We begin to put some roar into that uh, uh, warm fuzzy. <laughs> okay. And so that's the confidence that we have because we keep growing it practicing it. I can do this. I can do this. I can, Yes, I can feel good. Yes, I can feel warm and fuzzy. <laughs> yes, I can think myself into it. I can think warm and fuzzy thoughts, and that will bring on warm and fuzzy feelings. Gladdening the mind is another way of saying warm and fuzzy. Brightening the mind. Putting that attitude together. Yes, I can. Yeah, this feels good. Wow, I like this. Oh, this is so good. So this is how we practice. And we can do that in any posture at any time. 
And it's good to try, to try it for about 10 minutes to really let it build up so that you really, really feel good and get the, uh, the feelings, the value right out of it. Yeah, I, uh, I stopped using a timer because it was less, uh, let's say, less painful than the Mahasi method or uh, other, you know, more focus or concentration uh, type meditations. So I, uh, I kind of just started going until I start to feel tired, like my brain's kind of like getting sleepy and then uh, maybe get up and do something else. Yeah, so no more timer. And the best part about it is, is that you don't have to set the timer or do anything with the timer to start. Yeah. <laughs> you just, oh, I remember now. And so this is the new approach to remember to do it and then do it right then. As opposed to remember to do it, to plan on doing it, to tear yourself away from what you are doing so that you can go do it. And then you drudge yourself into getting there and you plop yourself down and then you try to talk yourself into doing it. And look how much hindrances all of that was. <laughs> Instead of, oh, I could meditate right now. Yeah, I could watch this video and breathe deep and have a, a, a joyful moment. So getting ourselves out of the frame of reference of only the meditation sitting posture is correct practice is actually backwards that 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 posture is actually dangerous because we might sit in that posture thinking that we're getting value out of it when in fact we're not practicing anything value and wholesome at all we're just sitting there in misery going deep into meditation not breathing well but noting our dukkha and getting really good at noting dukkha <laughs> and so in that regard, I would call that instead of what the Buddha teaches, he teaches Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda in the sense of see the Dukkha and come right out of it. But what they're doing is Dukkha, 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 look at Dukkha, see Dukkha, more Dukkha. I got it, Dukkha. Okay, I, now I've got real insight into that Dukkha. More Dukkha. More Dukkha. Yeah, I see that too. Dukkha, 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 on and on and on. And maybe if I look at Dukkha hard enough and strong enough, I'll get some freedom from it. No, that's just practicing more dukkha and getting really good at it. What we really need to practice instead is satisfaction. We need to practice sukha. We need to practice warm and fuzzy. Yeah, that sounds uh, like a better time, better experience. <laughs> yes. All right, Brian. Well, let's finish this call. I hope to see you again soon. Okay. It's been a while, been what, almost a year or so. It's been a little while. Well, go practice, go enjoy yourself. Will do. Or actually go enjoy, self is optional. <laughs> I'm working on that one. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that sometime soon too. So anyway, go enjoy, get those thoughts wholesome. Sounds good. Okay. Okay. Thank Alrighty. you. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye-bye.